You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. We're coming to you from the headquarters of the Office of Cable TV, Film, Music, and Entertainment, which is also the historic headquarters of Black Entertainment Television. So it's an honor to be here. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to celebrate this thing called the Council. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me as the Council's voice on social media, at Council of DC. If you don't follow us already, get with the program. Here at the Council, our communications goal is to engage with residents in an informative, conversational, and sometimes even enjoyable way. You know if you follow us on Twitter, we're believers in the Mary Poppins School of Communications. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We want to make it easy for average residents to understand what the Council does. We're demystifying our work and the people who do it. Remember, the D.C. Council is just like your workplace, except with the dais. On the show, we'll try to keep things light, offbeat, informal, and interesting. You learn about policy, learn about people, learn about history, and learn about the institution. Uh, so now, without any further ado, let's welcome our guest today, uh, Councilmember at Large David Grasso. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be back on the show. Wonderful. It's it's you know generally people get scared and run away, but you came right back for a second interview, so uh, we're grateful. Uh, as listeners know, we recently wrapped up our first round of interviews with council members. They're available on SoundCloud, SoundCloud, SoundCloud and iTunes. Um, those were focused mainly on getting to know the council members, their background and biographies. Now in our second round, we're going to focus more on life at the council. Experiences, their learning curve, surprises, ups and downs, ins and outs. And a disclaimer, unlike the first round, we shared the questions in advance so the council members could think things through a little bit if they chose to. And council members can pass on a question if they choose. So uh, we'll throw it over to the council member. And we're going big with the first question. What do you consider your greatest council success or a council success that you're proud of? I guess I should start by saying that uh, I'm excited to be back and also um, Really, the biggest success that I've had at the council was the time when we actually started a meeting on time. It was remarkable. I, you know, usually wait around for hours for our meetings to begin, and there was this time just last year where everyone came and we started on time. It was a remarkable thing, and, and I take it as a personal success because, uh, as many people know, I sit there and wait uh, regardless of how long it takes because I honestly believe that the people deserve uh, for us to be there on time and to be working. Anyway, joking aside. Right. Um, well, a, a, it's about time. Uh, <laughs> and B, I think time stopped when the time When that uh, happened, because it never happened again either, Josh. But in any case, um, you know, probably my, I have a lot of uh, things that I'm very proud about uh, legislatively at the council. Uh, I think, though, uh, the thing that is, comes to mind most recently is the creation of the out-of-school time office. We had, as you know, some real problems in the city with the previous uh, trust. Uh, it was the Youth Investment Trust. Uh, had to be dissolved. It, it wasn't continuing in its uh, current form. But we recognized, and I think with the help of a lot of advocates as well as my colleagues, that we needed to rebuild uh, some form of what it was doing to support out-of-school time so 
uh, we're talking after school programs, summer programs to allow students to continue their learning uh, into the evening and during the summer. This was something that has uh, been committed to in the past by all the mayors in the past and just had fallen a, in a bad way. So um, we wrote a law that recreated it. We created the commission on out-of-school time. We created the out-of-school time office in partnership with deputy mayor's office. We now have it up and running. There is a public commission that's been formed to keep uh, the government accountable to try to not make the same mistakes we made in the past and to get the money back on the streets, to give the opportunity for uh, students that normally maybe not have the opportunity for an after-school program to have it paid for. The fact is, is that uh, we are also changing the model a little bit to try to get the money first and foremost into communities where there is a need but there aren't programs. And these are mostly uh, communities where there's a lot of at-risk students, where there's a lot of poverty, and it's not easy to set up a program. And there are great programs out there, so this commission is now uh, doing a strategic plan and setting it up for the future to support uh, the students that need it the most first. And I think that's really important, so I'm very proud of that. Definitely. Uh, I remember a statistic that I'm going to totally mis-summarize uh, here, but basically that a, a large percentage of trouble with kids happens in that sort of three to six, like, I know a lot of parents work non-traditional hours, but right. kind of the time between school lets out and, you know, dinner, hopefully at home with parents coming home from work, those couple hours are trouble hours, and it's not that, that kids are bad, it's just when you got nothing to do and you start making things up you might right. not make the best decision. That's so that's right. critical. And, and I, I think it is critical, and I also, not to, not to interrupt you, but yeah, I sure. think it's important to note that this has been a collaborative effort across the city. Uh, the, the mayor has been a, a big supporter. We've had advocate groups that have worked really hard on this. We've had parents involved. We've had the youth themselves involved. And together, we've been able to recreate this and, in fact, fund it at a level that was close to what we need this year, which is over $20 million dollars to really invest in these students' lives and make sure that when they present themselves to school in the fall or the next day, that they haven't lost too much of what they learned the day before or the year before. And this is a challenge, I think, that, that we took head on and we got it done. And I, I appreciate the work of Councilmember Nadeau, who also worked with me on this because it was in her committee too, mm-hmm. um, and uh, all my colleagues who contributed to this effort. Yeah, and in government, we're all about acronyms and the Office of Out-of-School Time. Ooh, it always looks like an obscure Dutch town or something to me. We're just going to call it the Office of Out-of-School yeah, Time. Just, yeah, we'll just let the acronym go. Um, uh, now, why don't we go kind of the other direction and tell me about a challenge, a setback. I hesitate to use the word failure, um, but something that didn't go the way you wanted. It's It's... Probably one of my biggest challenges, I think, is that I haven't been able to get a language access bill through the council. Uh, You know, this is something that I believe is necessary. We have uh, a lot of students that do not speak English as their first language, and this problem was presented to me very early on in my tenure as a chair of the committee, and we made it a priority of the committee, and we've worked on it now for a number of years. Uh, my hope is that it will get through this fall, and we're working closely with my colleagues, in, including the chairman, to get that done. But the fact is is that we still have situations where students who do speak some English are forced to translate in their parent-teacher conferences for their parents. And you can see how that is just not a, the right approach. And so for me, that's been a big frustration. Uh, another frustration I think that's worthy worth noting is 
I, I really believe that the District of Columbia should move to a tax and regulate framework for marijuana. Uh, it's something that I've introduced and reintroduced over the years beyond just the initiative that passed uh, that allowed people to possess marijuana um, but not buy and sell it. I think we should get to the point where it's regulated like alcohol. I think it would remove it from the streets. I think it would make it more safe. Um, and the fact is is that we haven't been able to do that because the Congress uh, under Andy Harris in Maryland has put a rider on our budget every single year saying we're not allowed to do this. And it is uh, really unfortunate that the District of Columbia does not have voting representation in the Senate um, and that Congresswoman Norton in the House doesn't have more power than she has. Um, my, my feeling is that in the end we'll probably be the last jurisdiction standing uh, that doesn't have uh, tax and regulation of marijuana, uh, even though we were the first uh, of jurisdiction pretty much to come out and try to support uh, medical marijuana and also the decriminalization of marijuana. As long ago as 40 years ago, we were talking about this as a good solution towards keeping people out of jail, but also helping them get the help they need. Again, Congress steps in, and, and, and that's always a big disappointment for me when we can't beat Congress, especially when it's the right thing to do for the people of the city. Right. What is your take on the de facto cobbled together way things that are working now, where there are places that you purchase a T-shirt or an artwork or a pizza uh, for a price that seems maybe a little high for said uh, object, and then you are gifted a small amount of marijuana? I've said from the beginning that that's not legal and people should not be doing that. It is um, against the law. So you cannot buy and sell marijuana. You can give marijuana away, uh, but it's been litigated before that when you give a T-shirt or sell a T-shirt and give some marijuana with it, that's still buying marijuana. People need to be very careful. I, I think in the long run, this is just exactly the same things that was happening under prohibition of alcohol. Uh, back when there was uh, illegal to buy and sell alcohol in this country, the same things happened. You joined a club or you went and paid money to go to a dance and then you were given alcohol. Uh, those things back then were also illegal, but people did it because there was a desire to drink alcohol. I think it's similar here in the District of Columbia. People are going to continue to push the envelope. They're going to continue to try to uh, expand what they can and can't do with marijuana. The fact is, though, you cannot buy and sell marijuana in the District of Columbia unless you have a medical marijuana card um, that has been given to you by the city through the Department of Health, and then you must go uh, to um, dispensaries in the city to purchase marijuana legally that way. Um, but on the streets, it's simply not legal. In terms of the medical marijuana uh, program, how um, tightly restricted is a doctor's ability to prescribe marijuana? Because this may be apocryphal. I heard a story in California, not not our laws, but uh, I heard a story that a man's a man's prescribing physician for his medical marijuana was an OBGYN, um, which, which raises more questions than it answers. Um, and I just, I'm not at all suggesting that's the case in D.C., but I'm just wondering how, how strictly is that handled? When I first came into office and we had more recently been given the authority to actually do the regulation of medical marijuana in the city, it was very restricted. The doctor had only six different uh, symptoms or problems that you could get a prescription for marijuana for, or recommendation, I should say. 
Um, since then, we've opened it up, and you know we've done that because we really believe that the doctor's care was between the doctor and the patient, and not uh, something that the government should necessarily intrude in. Um, so we've made it now that any doctor can make a recommendation for medical marijuana, but they have to be licensed and they have to be registered with the Department of Health. The Department of Health then puts them through a fairly rigorous uh, test or uh, kind of qualification process, and then they end up getting the ability to refer. At that point, they then can refer their patient for medical marijuana treatment, uh, but they have to refer their patient to Department of Health, and then there's a check as well done on the individual patient, um, and then they are issued their card, and then they can purchase it. We have um, tried to make this more uh, simple over the years simply because um, I think that, uh, you know, adults should be able to take marijuana if they want to take marijuana recreationally. I don't even think you need to do it uh, through a medical reason if you want. Um, so we've tried to open it up more and more. Right. And back on uh, language access, because my daughter actually goes to a bilingual D.C. public school, and I know, speaking of, now they're doing parent-teacher conferences, at least in our school, as groups, which I think is really smart. That way the teacher's not repeating the same thing 30 times to 30 parents. But I will say that it feels like the meeting is either half as long or twice as long as it needs to be when you're only getting half of the language, because they, they keep pausing and then translating, which is incredibly necessary, and I'm but particularly in a bilingual school. But I do feel like there's uh, some challenges posed by that because it does take longer, and sometimes there are asides made in one language, and then when they repeat in the other language, the aside doesn't get translated. Talk a bit about the sort of the practicality of that. Obviously, trying to make sure that we can translate uh, into appropriate languages is a challenge and something that we need to overcome whenever we do it. Whether it's one language or ten languages, you have to figure it out. I think, though, it's important for us to put ourselves in the shoes of people that don't speak English and uh, realize that it's important for them to get this information in their native language or else they are completely out of luck. They have Absolutely. no understanding of the what their challenges of their student are. And I know when I was young, if somebody asked me to interpret how I was doing in school to my mother, I know it wouldn't have gone very well because I would have told her what I wanted her to hear more than I would have told her what was actually happening. And I think that is a, a challenge that you have when a student is uh, fairly bilingual or is working on it and a parent is not. Uh, you have to work that out. And I think the priority has to be on working that out. Uh, we say that we're a sanctuary city. We say that we're a city that welcomes everybody. Then I think it's important for us to uh, make sure that it's possible for everybody to get a quality education in our city. And that, I think, includes the ability to get their services translated if necessary. Yeah, and we'll have to ask uh, Mary Che about this, but the Constitution prevents self-incrimination. And if you require a student to translate what the teacher is saying about the kid and the kid's not doing well in school and then they're going to get in trouble with the parent, I think we're in some dicey... Uh, it's not a constitutional protection I there. Know, but I'm, I, kidding, I, I'm and, kidding. And I can tell you that because I'm also a lawyer and, of in course. fact, studied constitutional law as well. So um, it is possible for more than one person to understand the law. No, absolutely. I'm just teasing because she mentions that... Uh, All the time. Yeah. Um... So, anyway, another mood shift. It's nothing but mood shifts today. Uh, this is a segment we call Tears on the Dais, um, which is the, the worst soul song title in history. Um, tell me about a moment when you were in a hearing, and uh, it doesn't have to be a hearing, it could be a community meeting, and you just choked up. 
you just heard something so heartbreaking and so devastating that you just, as a human, put aside council member as a human, you, you just couldn't take it. I think the biggest challenge for me is when we're in uh, hearings and youth come in and testify about the struggles they're having in schools. And this is this happens all the time. We, we have uh, youth hearings every fall. Um, and the reality is, is that when a four-year-old or a 10-year-old looks you in the eyes from the other side and is speaking in the microphone and says, hey, you know, you're not living up to my expectations, that's really harsh and it's really hard to take. And you have to have some moment there to gather yourself and to make sure that you're still engaging with that student meaningfully um, while not getting caught up and being upset and disappointed on your own. The, the, you know, the youth come in with all sorts of issues and that's really devastating. Um, you know, I think the, the other challenging, uh, probably the most challenging, one of the most challenging hearings for me was when we did a hearing recently on removing the statute of limitations, both civilly and criminally, for sexual assault of minors. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a witness come in from Maryland who had been repeatedly assaulted in his life as, as a child. And he talked about the struggles that he went through, but also talked about uh, how the government had failed him because it did not allow him to go back at, You know, once he was able to and to get justice in that case. Um, and you know, this comes to mind today, especially with the big reports that are coming out of Pennsylvania um, with the Catholic Church and having over 300 priests that have been documented as having assaulted minors in, in Pennsylvania. And that's just one state, and it's over 1,000 minors. And my, my worry uh, constantly is that there will be no justice served, that these priests have been protected by the church, and that ultimately the victims, when they come out, are in their 30s or 40s, and the statute of limitations has run. And um, last year we had a hearing on a bill that I introduced that would remove the civil statute of limitations, as well as a bill that Councilmember Che introduced that would remove the criminal statute of limitations when it comes to child sexual assault. Uh, that bill, and I, I think it should move, I, I, I hope that we can see it through this fall. Um, the fact is, though, that that is just heart-wrenching stuff. There's no way that you can avoid it. Um, it's hard not to break down. It's hard not to get emotional, and for good reason, because these are the most vulnerable members of our community. And when we don't protect them and we don't do all that we can to support them, um, you really feel awful. Yeah, and I think that in a lot that government is doing these days, we're increasingly realizing that if we succeed in the earliest years of a child's life, we're setting a child up for success. And we're preventing, from just a governmental standpoint, saving millions of dollars that That's we would right. need to try to turn a kid around. And, and our conversely. society will be better off in the long run. Absolutely. Because it's a these are our future leaders. And instead, we've neglected to do that, in my opinion. And we've neglected, I think, in this city to have high-quality education for too long. And I think we're fighting to do that. And certainly, it's why I want to be the chair and continue to be the chair of the Committee on Education, because I think exactly what you're saying is important to embrace the child's learning uh, opportunities from pre-birth all the way through. Yeah, and conversely, when we fail those kids, or in the case of child sexual abuse or something like that, it has an impact. It, it magnifies so intensely. Successes magnify and failures. That's right. Um, another another mood shift, uh, but but I know you I know you got them. So, do you have any funny stories, hysterical behind the scenes moments, things that didn't go the way they were supposed to? Uh, 
help us out. This stuff can, as it just did, get awfully serious, and the public uh, doesn't know, get to see some of the... When I was uh, first elected, um, you know, I, I really wanted to have the opportunity to sit next to um, Marion Barry. And, you know, it was a real honor that I did for two years get to sit next to him. And um, the people don't realize, though, that the more entertaining side was on my left side, which was Yvette Alexander, who I, I know that Yvette will listen to this, and I hope she's doing great, and I do love her dearly. We had a lot of fun on the dais together, the three of us. And, you know, it was never that we we didn't agree on everything for sure, um, but um, there were times when Yvette and I would be waiting to get the the meeting started and she would begin to play music over the microphone to get the attention of the chairman to say, let's go, <laughs> um, and things like that, which were just uh, really broke the mood and made it uh, enjoyable and had a lot of fun uh, doing it. Um, you know, Mayor Barry was also a character and, and somebody who I have uh, still have a ton of respect for. And he had a lot of um, moments with me that were pretty funny. And, I, and I'm not going to tell you all of them, but I will mention one. Um, he looked over at me at one point. And, you know, he always leaned back in his chair when he was thinking. And he, looked, he leaned over and he said, I must have gotten up on the wrong side of the bed today. I said, Mr. Mayor, why is that? He said, well, I've been voting with you all day long. <laughs> I said, no, that's crazy. I, we vote together all the time. He goes, ah, I'm just joking, man. But, you know, <laughs> I've been voting with you all day long. I said, that was too funny. Yeah, and, the, and you know, I think Mayor Barry's given us a bit of an advance on what I think the rest of us are going through when we're increasingly finding there's no such thing as a perfect hero, that's as right. a perfect public figure. And what do you do? You know, in D.C., we, I think it's the right decision, are very honest about Mayor Barry's failures, but look at the broader successes and are able to judge him as a mixed figure. We don't forgive him the failures, but it's a challenge because I think we're in a time now where people don't know what to do. We're finding out so many people we thought we loved were flawed. Yeah. And what do you, do you walk away? Do you try to find, stick with the good? Well, I honestly don't know what you do. Good question, Josh. I mean, I, you know, certainly Mayor Barry made it easy because at his core, he was an amazing human being. And he was somebody who dedicated his life to this city, uh, cared about every single person here. And so um, when you look at a person's motivations and you try to understand what motivates them, I think that's when you can get to who their real character is. Um, and his motivation was trying to make the city better and trying to give everyone in the city a real opportunity for success and I think he did that and he made our city great and the fact is that it's hard to do that with every leader uh, but I think it's important to dig deep and really understand who they are at their core and then understand what they've done to try to make their character better over time and if you do that and you really look closely I think you'll find out what their motivations are and why they're in office um, and then that'll give you something to hold on to in the tough times. That makes sense. Now, from a procedural standpoint, you uh, already mentioned that uh, us uh, starting on time or not starting on time uh, is, a, is a pet peeve or a bone of contention. What are some other kind of council, small, you know, pet peeve kind of stuff about the council that makes you crazy or a couple little things about how we run the council that you think make a lot of sense? There, There is, I think, uh, a serious problem with time. You know, I've, I've said that 
you know, for my entire time I've been in office and even before that. So um, I do think we have to continue to work on that, and it's a matter of respect for the public. But for the most part, I think things are run well. And, you know, I think we try hard to be open. Uh, you know, it's very rare now that we close meetings. I think that's very important. Uh, the public needs to hear how we're deliberating. The public needs to be a part of that deliberation. I honestly think we do a better job when they are. And so I've been uh, very excited that the chairman has continued to keep meetings open. The breakfast meetings, I think, are important that they should be open. I think our annual budget deliberation being live on TV is important. Um, I know it's hard for some of my colleagues to accept, and, and it may keep some of them from speaking openly, perhaps. But um, I would prefer that we speak honestly in front, you know, basically as best we can in front of the public. Um, rather than try to look like or even do hide things, and that's important to me. So open government is really a big priority. I think we've also done a good job of getting more and more documents out there for people to be able to have access to, which is very important. Um, the best work that we do is when people are engaged. Yeah, absolutely, and definitely the small part that, that I'm able to play in that is, you know, when we're having those budget meetings and I'm tweeting out the PowerPoint yeah. in real time that the council members are getting shown by the budget director. That's right. You know, we can't always do that, but we are really trying to get stuff out. I mean, it's the kind of the classic problem of our information age that there's such a density of stuff right. that it, it's a challenge knowing what to do with it all. I mean, people get sent to them links to dozens of hours of hearings. Right. Uh, and that, that poses its own challenge, but it sure is better than the alternative. Well, I think the that's right. Days, the hearing ended, and if you weren't there... Yeah. You didn't see it? You were... When I, when I worked in the council years ago, it was like that. And so you did the best you could to do a robust, in-depth report of what happened for the file. And that's really important. Now, somebody can go back and watch a hearing on the fly in the middle of the night if they want to. And uh, that really adds a lot better to the engagement availability. Yeah. No, I think it's true. I think it's true. And listeners, of course, that's also true of this radio show, that it used to be that you had to listen live at 3 p.m. on weekdays. But now that we are also podcasting on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes, then you can listen whenever you want. That's great. You can, bless your heart, binge listen to this stuff. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got to be having one hell of a summer if that's how you're choosing to spend your Going time. Going to the beach and binge but listening. Binge listening. To, like, you'd sooner binge listen to this than to the actual year. I'm slightly biased. A little, uh, more, a little I more love the hearings. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah. And I sit there with it on in the background yeah. and find myself laughing and crying. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Admittedly, the gems are kind of mixed in with the rest of it, but still... Um, well, as you remember from last time, we uh, have a sort of whimsical closeout question. Last time you answered dessert categories, which was complicated because you're not a dessert guy. Yes. Um, but this time, our closeout question is, we would like you to pick at least two of the following. Do an impression. Tell a joke. Tell us about a strange thing you collect. Tell us about an oddball job you had. Tell us about one ludicrous thing you can't live without. Tell us about your weirdest family member, or shower me with effusive praise. <laughs> Please choose at least two of those, and that will close two. us out. I got to do two? You got to do at least two. The rules are the rules. Let's see. Um, I, but my joke is kind of long. So uh, bring do I have it on. time? All bring right, it on. All right. So uh, my joke is about this uh, city guy who went out to the country, okay? Okay. So he uh, drives out to the country in his sports car, and he's having a fun time driving through the country roads. You know how you can get out there and really enjoy it. And he's out there in the country, and uh, all of a sudden his car breaks down. 
and he's kind of out there in the middle of nowhere, and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go knock on the door of this farmhouse over here. He goes over to the farmhouse, he knocks on the door, and the farmer comes to the door, and he says, can I help you? And he says, yes, my car broke down. Do you think you can help me? And the farmer says, well, I think I can help you. He says, I've got this really smart pig that knows how to fix cars. So if you give me a hand to putting it in the truck, we'll take the pig over to the car and we'll see if it can fix your car. So they take the pig and they put it in the truck and they go over to the car and they're at the car and they open up the hood and the pig gets put in there and the farmer says, we'll just wait a minute. The pig's rooting around in there, right? Trying to figure out what the problem was. And the farmer knows the pig's about done, right? So he goes over and he says, are you about done? The pig looks at him and snorts at him. And the guy gets back in the car and he goes to start the car and it starts right up comes out and he guy notices that the pig has one wooden leg and he says hey i really appreciate your help but i gotta ask you why does that pig have a wooden leg and the farmer says well now you wouldn't want to eat a pig that smart all at once now would you <laughs> come on that's hey that's not bad and and particularly given that you are a city guy who lived out in the country i raised the pig it's a little you know autobiographical there I don't have any weird family members, <laughs> right? Because they'll probably listen. They'll to probably this, so listen. I don't yeah. know about that. I did have a. Um, uh, I did a lot of work uh, when I was very young catering, and one of the oddball jobs I had was one party. I had to actually uh, start out by parking cars, then go do food prep, then change into a tuxedo and serve food all night long, then wash all the dishes, and then run back out and get people's cars as they were leaving. Um, that made for a very long night, but I made quite a bit of money, and it was a lot of fun. But it was definitely not how I would do it if I were running a business. Correct. Uh, a funny story from Charles Allen when he worked in a hospital was that he was the one who brought uh, people from the waiting room into surgery, um, wheeled them you know, yeah. down in a wheelchair. Then he would scrub in. I forget what role he had, but he would scrub in. So basically, the guy who seemed like the porter or like the valet parker now. all of a sudden is wearing <laughs> scrubs, and it's the last thing you see before you go under from the anesthesia. That's so great. yeah, so multitasking uh, is a thing apparently. Um, well, sadly, we are out of time. Um, but uh, thanks again for joining us, um, listeners. Uh, tune in again next time. We're at DC Radio at 96.3 on your HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. Uh, thank you again, Council thank Member. You. Very thank grateful you. for you to uh, take your time. You're very uh, kind and indulgent. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. Excellent. Uh, I'm Josh Gibson, and this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. Thank you. Thank you.